Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, welcome to church, friends. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Grant, and I'm uh, so looking forward to continuing our journey through the book of Mark with you this morning. So with that said, would you uh, pull out your holy word of God, your very own copy of the scriptures, and turn with me to Mark chapter 6, where we'll begin where we left off last week, midway through verse 6. Now, as you're flipping there, I encourage you to leave your copy, uh, leave your Bibles open uh, as we study, because we'll be referring back to it, and we're going to be reading a bit of a bigger chunk again later on. So, uh, but now we start in Mark 6, starting in the second half of verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people with oil and healed them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be changed as a result of encountering it this morning. Amen. So our text this morning picks up after Jesus has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, as we saw in last week's text. And so in response to this rejection, Jesus moves on from there. If, if Nazareth would not listen to him, if they would not receive him, he would move on to the other villages to give them the opportunity to hear and receive the message of the kingdom of God. Now, according to our gospel, this traveling amongst the towns is Jesus' third preaching tour in Galilee. In Mark 1:14, we read of his first tour. It said this, after John was in, put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Then in Mark 1.39, we read again that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And here we have another preaching tour or ministry trip throughout the region where Jesus uh, does a significant portion of his earthly ministry. Only this trip, as we read, ends up being a little bit different than the others. Rather than Jesus going from town to town with his disciples in tow, he sends out his disciples for them to go town to town with the message of the kingdom. And here we see that the message of the kingdom is meant to be spread by the people of God and not simply by God himself as we have seen up until this point. The disciples here go from observers, partners in ministry, maybe Jesus' entourage, to themselves being the very ministers of the gospel. As James R. Edwards states, he says, Jesus had no intention of being a solo artist in the work to which God had called him. 
Right? This was Jesus' plan all along, that he would multiply himself by making disciples or followers in his very own image that could reproduce his work all over the world. Messengers who make messengers who make messengers expand the message of the kingdom much faster than one ever can. And this is still God's MO today. God still chooses to use his people to advance his kingdom by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, all of whom are mouthpieces of the kingdom wherever they go. Matthew 28, 19 to 20 tells us this. It says, therefore, go, right? You go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And Matthew 5.14-16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus' plan from the start was that the message could be multiplied through discipleship and through the evangelistic work of God's people. And so here we see for the first time missionaries sent out from Christ with the unique authority of Christ to replicate his ministry and expand the pronouncing of his kingdom. Verse 7 says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Okay, so the first thing that we're told is that Jesus did not send everyone. Did you notice that? Who, who is it that Jesus sent out? The 12. Right? Those 12 men who we have already seen Jesus call in chapter 1 and beyond and appoint in chapter 3. Do, do you remember these guys, these 12 from chapter 3? Uh, a few months ago, we, we named them all. Right? We, we came across Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Simon, James, Thomas, Philip, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, and Judas. Right? These are the 12. And in Mark 3, 14 and 15, we read that Jesus appointed these 12 men so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Right? He appointed them. He was preparing them for a time like this. And in today's passage, he actually does it. He sends the ones he has appointed out. Now, when Mark uses the term, uh, or when Mark says that Jesus sent them, he uses the verb form of the Greek noun apostolos, or as we know the word to be, apostle which means one sent forth. And this is important to note because we read about both disciples and apostles in the New Testament, but we must know that these words are not simply synonymous. Disciple does not mean apostle. Apostle does not mean disciple. A disciple is a student who learns under and follows a teacher. 
right? In the New Testament, we read about numerous disciples, hundreds, thousands even, who followed Jesus, who shaped their life around him. But the term apostle refers to one who is commissioned or sent by a master with the master's very own authority, right? They're sent as a legitimate representative of the master with the ability to speak and act on his behalf. And as I mentioned, while there are numerous disciples of Jesus, there are only 12 who Jesus grants his very own authority and power to as he sends them out as his representatives. So when you read the Gospels and you come across these terms, right, when you come across the term disciple, you can think about the hundreds, even thousands who followed in the way of Jesus. But when you think about the apostles, think about the 12 who we typically call the disciples, don't we? But, but those ones who were uniquely empowered through whom the word of God would go out, through whom the church would be initiated, and through whom the church would grow. Now, you will likely catch me messing this up myself as we continue through this series, but it is most accurate uh, from this point on to refer to the 12 as apostles and not simply disciples. They certainly are disciples, but they are a set-apart few that are distinguished from the others based on the authority granted to them by Christ himself. Now, we could do a whole series on this distinction and the unique power that the apostles had throughout the New Testament to establish the church and to spread the word of God. But for today's purposes, it will suffice uh, for us to at least understand this distinction and notice the significance of the sending that is being done in our passage. Okay, so Jesus sends out the 12 as apostles with his authority to do his work, but he does so with some specific instructions. The first instruction is to travel in pairs. Verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two. Right? They, they were not meant to go out on mission alone. Now why would Jesus send them out two by two? Right? It doesn't take a math whiz to realize that if he sent them out individually, you could, you could double the reach, right? Well, there are likely two reasons for Jesus sending them out in pairs. And the first one is in line with the entire council of Scripture that, that tells us over and over again that we are not meant to be alone in this life. And ministry is no different. Right from Genesis chapter 2, where God creates a partner for Adam after declaring that it's not good for man to be alone, we have seen the emphasis on community in ministry. Right? Noah had his sons to help him build the ark. Moses had Aaron and Miriam to help him lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Joshua and Caleb stood unified under the banner of God's ability David had Jonathan to comfort him through the struggles of coming to power. Naomi had Ruth. Mary had Joseph. And Jesus himself called the 12 and even an inner circle of three to walk the journey of ministry with him. As King Solomon wrote earlier about companionship in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. 
If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Church, the task of ministry, right, of which we have all been called into, is not a solo journey. Right? We're not meant to walk the path alone. We've been brought into a family that we may be a part of a much greater body rather than struggling to be an entire body unto ourselves. So in the same way that Jesus sent the disciples within community, we too are invited to serve together, to gather first before we go as one body for the kingdom of God. Right? Together we can complement one another's gifts. We can seek one another for support and good counsel. As Solomon said, the labor of community has good return. So friends, may we pursue community in life and in ministry. And the second reason that Jesus sends them out in pairs is linked to the Old Testament's guidance that matters are to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, as we read in Deuteronomy 19.15. You see, going out on their own would provide no strong testimony to the truth of their statements among the Jews that they were witnessing to. But if they could affirm for each other what they were saying, what they had seen, their testimony was valid. They, their testimony could be taken seriously. Right? Similarly to what we talked about last week, sometimes an intentional ministry partner can affirm what we have been saying all along so that it lands on hearts that will receive. So Jesus sends them out intentionally in pairs. Instruction number one. The next instruction that Jesus gives the apostles is to rely on God's power. Verse 7, he gave them authority over impure spirits. Now, as we said before, God granted them his own authority. So when they encountered that which opposed them, they had the very authority of the one who sent them to silence the evil they encountered. Now notice, Jesus didn't just give them a code word or a formula. He gave them his own power, right? Any supernatural work they did was not of their own doing because they remembered something, because they knew something, but was done through them by the power of God. Now why were they given this power? Well, the scriptures say that the reason for any of the miraculous was to authenticate the message of the kingdom of God. Miracles, for the sake of miracles, do not accomplish anything. But miracles, which serve to authenticate the message that brings eternal healing, freedom, and salvation, well, those change everything. See, Jesus didn't give the apostles his power so that they could just do some cool stuff throughout Galilee but rather so that sinners could come to repentance and find freedom in the kingdom of God. And, and this message would be listened to as it was authenticated by the power of God. In John chapter 2, a Pharisee named Nicodemus says this to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Why? 
Because no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Right? The signs and miracles from God are what confirm that the message is from God. We read the same thing in Exodus with the story of Moses in the desert. A concerned Moses asks God about the Israelites that he was about to lead. In Exodus 4.1, he says, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Right? You're not speaking on the Lord's behalf. And so God, in response to Moses, gave him the ability to perform three signs. To turn his staff into a snake, make his hand wither and be healed, and to turn water into blood. And as he gave him these signs, the ability, he said this. This is from the mouth of the Lord. This, says the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord... The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you, right? That they will believe that you are legit, that, that what you say comes from me because what you did can only come from me, right? And so in, in this case, Jesus granted the apostles power from God so that the people would believe that the message too also came from God. Next, Jesus gave them the instruction to pack light. Some of you are nudging your, the people you came with, right? Are there, are there any, like, I only travel with my uh, carry-on luggage type people here? Are there any people who are like, I could never, ever, ever do that, right? I need four bags and my animal. Well, Jesus instructs them to pack light. Uh, Verse 8 and 9 says, These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Here, Jesus is saying, Obeying my call is not something that you pack for. Don't pack food for the journey. Rather, trust that I will provide. Don't bring your favorite pillow, your retainer, your iPhone. Not sure they had retainers back then. Just bring yourself and trust that I will provide and I will use you. If you truly believe in the message that you are preaching, that I am God, that I am present among you, it should not be a stretch to apply this knowledge and trust me yourself as you are inviting others to put their trust in me. No money in your belt. No extra clothing to keep you warm in the situation you need to sleep outside because if you trust me, you won't sleep outside and you won't be lacking anything that your money could buy. Jesus wanted them to leave everything behind and learn to depend on divine providence, right? His provision was to come from the people along the way and not from their own planning or their own suitcases. This brings to mind God's command to the Israelites in Exodus to be ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice with no time to pack. 
Exodus 12, 11 says, This is how you are to eat the Passover supper. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's a famous expression that says, you can't take it with you when you die. You heard that before? You can't take it with you when you die, meaning that all of the stuff that you accumulate is only good for, for the moment, but does you no good in the grand scheme of things. Well, here, Jesus is basically saying, if you can't take it with you then, why would you take it with you now if you have been given eyes to see in light of eternity? Right? If you are dead to yourself, to your old way of life, to that which you used to value, why not release those things now? If you can't take it with you when you die, why are you lugging it around today? Only carry with you that which is eternal. The disciples were to trust in God's provision 100%, not just 90%, and then, you know, 10% in their money belt or the food in their bags. The next instruction Jesus gave was to stay in one place. All right, stay in one place. Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now this was to guard against favoritism. Right? Basically, the instruction is this. If a poor person offers you their humble home and you accept it, do not move if you're offered better accommodations along the way. I remember a story a friend of mine uh, told me um, who uh, he invited a friend to a bomber game, I think it was, and you know they sat up in the nosebleeds like most of us do. And, um, and this friend, I guess, noticed another friend that he had uh, sitting way lower and they had an extra seat and this person proceeded to go down and sit in the closer seat with their other friend and uh, yeah, I don't know if that friendship remained the same after that right but that's essentially what Jesus is saying he's saying don't do that that's not what this is about this isn't about high living and fine dining you're not to move on up as you go leveraging people you know getting a higher status you will be offered hospitality and it's up to you to receive it and be thankful and be faithful to those who receive you joyfully. And the final instruction is simple. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Verse 11. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. R.C. Sproul says this about verse 11. The practice of shaking the dust off one's feet goes back to antiquity. When Jews who had traveled in, in, in Gentile regions came home, they were required to shake the dust off their feet at the border lest they bring the contamination of the pagan world into Israel. That action symbolized God's judgment on paganism. So this shaking off the dust was a sign of judgment that, that God would have the final word among those who rejected him and his representatives. In fact, we read in Acts 13.51 of Paul and Barnabas doing this exact thing as a warning to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch who expelled them from their region. Right? Jesus was reminding the apostles that there will be places where the word is not received. 
and where messengers are not welcomed. That is just the truth, right? They had just witnessed this in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And so he tells them to keep moving. The the decision to receive or reject God is not a decision to varying degrees. So if people don't receive it, let them leave them and go to where the soil is more fertile. Now that doesn't mean that you never return there, right? But now is evidently not the time. And the same is true for us. There are some places right now where the word of God is not welcome. There are some people whose hearts are hard, no matter what we do or how eloquent our words are. Right Now, that doesn't mean we give up on them and never return. But in the meantime, we move on in ministry. We search for places with fertile soil that we can bring the word to where it may be received. You see, there are just under 8 billion people in the world, most of whom do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. There's no time to waste. We must continue to seek opportunities to introduce people to Christ, and sometimes that means moving on for a time from where our focus has been. So those are Jesus' instructions to the apostles on their first evangelistic journey. And guess what? They obeyed the instructions. And guess what happened? God used them, and God took care of them. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They did it. And they drove out many demons. They did it. And many sick people were healed. Amazing, right? They preached, they healed, they spread the kingdom of God. Now notice that our text doesn't say most of them fared well or even Only three of them died from starvation. That's pretty good. No, right? They all preached and they ate and were kept warm. They healed the sick and they cast out demons. The authority of Christ worked and so did trusting in his provision. You see, when God calls his people to obey him, even when he asks us to trust him and give him control, even if it doesn't make sense or causes us concern, God takes care of us. I think we can all fill in the blank for what this means for you right now. Maybe God is asking you to give up a well-paying job for one that pays less but would allow you to spend more time serving, growing in him, or pouring into your family. Or maybe you're sensing that God is asking you to begin or to be more generous in your giving, your tithing to the church or supporting missions. Or maybe you're sensing that God is calling you to trust in him by taking a leap of faith in one way or another. Right, friends, your obedience will not harm you in the end. God will take care of you. God will provide for what he has commissioned Matthew 6, 25, 26 says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than, the clo- than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The disciples experienced this firsthand. Trusting in the provision and will of God and what an awesome experience it was. 
and when we skip to verse 30, they have the opportunity to report to Jesus the amazing things he's done. Uh, Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Can you just imagine this encounter? Jesus, you're never going to believe this. Jesus, guess what we did? Jesus, Andrew healed a man, right? Jesus, I cast out a demon, right? It would be like a bus of kindergarten kids getting back from a field trip, right? They all have a thousand things to tell you at the exact same time. They're excited about what they've experienced. Can you imagine the joy in this moment as the apostles report what they had a front row seat to see God do and and tell God about the things that, or tell Jesus about the things that God did through their very hands. The disciples obeyed and God provided and the kingdom advanced. What an amazing equation, right? And guess what? That's the way our Savior works. When we are obedient, God takes care of us. He works through us and lives and eternities are changed as a result. Praise the Lord. But here's a question that I have in this text. Why do we need to wait until verse 30 to hear this? Why doesn't the text say, you know, they did all this stuff, and then they told Jesus about it, and then it moves on to the next account? You see, in the middle of this text, there's another text interpolated. Remember that word? This is another sandwich text. Our author Mark sure likes using this literary device, doesn't he? In the middle of this account of the apostles being sent out and then returning, our author Mark presents a flashback account of the death of John the Baptist, of all things. Why don't we, I hope you left your Bibles open like you were instructed, and uh, we're going to read this next section in the middle, starting at verse 14. King Herod heard about this, right? King Herod heard about what Jesus and the apostles were doing. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. This is like straight out of Jerry Springer right here, by the way. For, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias, this is uh, Herod Antipas's stepdaughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The story's getting weirder. 
And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Nice lady. At once, the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. Okay. If we had more time, um, we could really dig into the details of this story. Uh, What a fascinating text. It has a fascinating history. Like I said, it is messy. Uh, But for today, we're going to have to just let the text we read suffice for, for our understanding today. But regardless of, of if we were to dig in deeper, what an interesting account, right? This is how John the Baptist, the, the preparer of the kingdom, the signpost to Jesus, went home to be with the one who commissioned him with such an incredible task. Now, I have no question as to why Mark included this in his gospel, considering the significance of John's ministry in preparing hearts to receive the kingdom of God and to, to, uh, to receive Jesus when he came. But what I do wonder is, why does Mark sandwich this story of John's death in the middle of the apostles' first missionary journey? One answer could be that this happened while they were out on mission, right? And, and so it ends up in this order in the text due to its actual timing. But unfortunately, our text doesn't allow for that interpretation. Verse 14 and 16 reads this way. King Herod heard about the work of the traveling apostles, for Jesus' name had become well known. When Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, past tense, has been raised from the dead. Right? So in response to what Jesus and the apostles were doing, Herod became fearful that Jesus was John the Baptist, whom he had already killed. Right? So this is a flashback to something that had already happened sometime earlier, which means that it is the author not the sequence of events that places this account within the apostles' missionary journeys, intentionally placing these stories together to make a cohesive point. But why? What does this have to do with the apostles? What point does the story of the death of John the Baptist have to make about the apostles' ministry and their obedience to Jesus? Well, in short, it speaks to the cost of following Jesus. The cost of doing God's will, the cost of obedience. Right? Giving your life to the kingdom of God can ultimately cost you your life in the kingdom of this world. You see, the same calling The same sending, the same obedience that put the disciples in the position to change lives by the power of God will also put God's people in danger of losing their lives in the process. 
And this is a great tension in this text. We just saw the truth that God will provide for those who are obedient to him. And yet this obedience may be exactly what leads us into difficulty. See, while we know that God will provide, we also know that his provision will always be subject to his will. And God's will goes beyond simply granting us comfort and ease, but is focused on that which is eternal. You see, just as John the Baptist faithfully obeyed God, declared the kingdom, spoke the truth, and eventually paid the ultimate price, this text foreshadows the reality that will await essentially all of these apostles as well. A couple months ago, when we originally read this list of the 12 apostles, we recalled what their ultimate earthly fate was. Right? We had a list, crucifixions, imprisonments, beheadings, and the list goes on. Right? The story of John the Baptist tells us where this type of obedience ultimately ends up for those who forsake it all for the kingdom, not least of which is Jesus just as John's ministry was the precursor to Christ's ministry, so too is John's death a precursor to the death of Christ, who was obedient, as Philippians 2 tells us, from birth until death. And for us, church, as we ponder what does this mean for us, this cost to doing God's will will become more obvious as we move away from a culture that applauds or even accepts the church. We, we've talked about this reality before. You see, for many years, our culture has been based and built upon Christian morality. And the difference between a true follower of Christ and an unbelieving yet moral citizen from the outside was the difference between white and off-white. The uncommitted could simply blend into a cultural Christianity. Well, the believer didn't need to count the cost for following Jesus because doing so didn't seem to stand out all that much. White doesn't look much different than off-white. Well, friends, this is rapidly changing. As our cultural values look less and less like Christian morality, we too will look less and less like the people around us. And the children of the light stand out in a world growing dim. Gone are the days of blending in. And here are the days of standing out. And unfortunately, our culture isn't too fond of those who stand out. I just started reading a book this week called Being the Bad Guys. And the subtitle reads, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. It's so true. Church, we live in a culture where Christian morality is not only no longer the norm, but where Christianity is increasingly seen as dangerous. And we need to know that there may be significant consequences to living in obedience to Christ in North America today and tomorrow. For some, it may be that we're rejected by those we know and love, as we saw last week with Jesus in Nazareth. For others, it may be that our ministry is forbidden as it was in some of the towns that the apostles traveled into where they were not welcomed. 
And for others, it may cost even more than that, being discriminated against, charged, imprisoned, beaten, even killed for the sake of the kingdom. And while this may be new for us to consider, this is not a new reality for the church. But here's the thing, church. It's still worth it. Right? Following Christ will never prove to be the wrong choice. You will never regret obedience to God in the end. And to prove it, I refer us back to the reports of the disciples' journey in verse 30. And this is the cool part about where this sandwich is placed, where the story is broken up. You see, right after we read about the difficult reality of following until the end, we read in verse 30 that the apostles all reunited, they all returned, and they reported and recalled what God had done. Church, this is foreshadowing as well. There will be a day when the faithful will gather and they will recall what the Lord did, what they got to witness by the power of Christ. And while the script may not have gone exactly the way we would have written it, and while the common themes of the lives of the faithful will not be comfort and ease, what a joyful day that will be when every sacrifice proves to be worth it, when every challenge will be seen to have incredible value, and every tribe Every tongue, every nation will be represented around that circle, declaring the praises of God who used the obedient to change the world. As Jesus himself will say just a few chapters from now in Mark 8.35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it consistently is to us. God, help us to walk in obedience, giving up whatever you call us to for the sake of your kingdom, that we and all those you send us to may have life eternal, and declare together just what you have done. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.